Greetings, everyone. So today we're going to continue on our lecture series on the history of the Christian church through the Middle Ages. Um, so now we're going to take a look in, at focusing on the uh, Carlaginian period, roughly from the 7th to the 9th centuries, um, and diving into the development of the church in that time period. So a little background reminder, remember the uh, Western Roman Empire fell roughly around uh, 476, you know, depending on your uh, viewpoint, um, with the last Roman emperor being deposed in the West, uh, the rise of different Germanic kings like the Goths and the Franks and such. Um, and from, from that uh, 5th to 7th century, there was the development of these different Frankish kingdoms. Um, our different Germanic kingdoms. And what we're going to do is look at the Franks because they play a pivotal role in setting up uh, life and culture in the medieval period, stretching from France to modern day Germany and having some impact in Northern Italy, as well as the British Isles. So there, it, there are, and without doubt, important uh, period, important uh, groups of individuals to look at. Um, so the Franks uh, moved from Germany and settled into what's now considered France today, Roman Gaul, uh, then um, established themselves as a Catholic kingdom under Clovis. And Clovis was part of the Merovingian dynasty. Um, the Merovingians uh, conducted a series of campaigns of expansion throughout France uh, and grew in power and strength. But by the, by, by the end of the uh, 6th and into the 7th century, uh, the Merovingians began to lose uh, power. Um, different causes for this one is as the uh, Merovingian king died, they would they would divide their realm among their children, um, and which would cause the periods of civil war where they'd be reunited together. So there was a gradual weakness there. There was also a growing strength of the nobility um, as the nobility began to challenge the power of the Merovingian uh, kings, and ultimately uh, one position rose uh, to uh, cement control over the mayor of Virginian court. And that was the mayors of the Royal Palace. Now the mayors of the Royal Palace acted as a mixture of like a chief of staff today and a prime minister. They're the ones who can determine who could and couldn't see the king. They directed all policy. They uh, made appointments uh, for uh, different uh, regions and for governors in a sense and uh, bishops. Um, so they really held uh, the major power uh, within the court of the of the Merovingian king, one family in particular was the Carlaginians, established by Pepin, uh, who, uh, as a mayor of the royal palace, really uh, held that control and that influence. Um, we saw an important figure when we looked at the the history of Islam last time was Charles Martel. He was a mayor of the royal palace who helped, as the Franks stop uh, the Islamic armies at the Battle of Tours, turning them back in seven thirty two. Um, in this time period as well, um, we still have. Um, we still have a massive missions movement from the British and Irish monks traveling across um, across Western Europe, um, more specifically like Willowbrod and Boniface, who play a role in uh, Christianizing uh, parts of Germany today um, in that Central European region. Um, so as the Frankish kingdom began to grow in strength and power, even at the cost of the Merovingian king's power and influence, the bond between the papacy and the Fran and the kingdom of Franks grew closer together. This was due to different reasons. One was the uh, the Byzantine control over Italy began to decrease with the rise of the Lombards, another Germanic tribe in northern Italy. The papacy was looking for uh, another kingdom to counterbalance the influence of the Byzantine court at the uh, in the city of Rome and the Vatican. 
And so there began to be a tie at the bonds between uh, the papacy and, and the Franks began to grow closer and closer, especially when Pepin, the son of Mar Charles Martel, uh, as the mayor of the royal palace, sought uh, support from the papacy to remove the last Merovingian king. And so he got that in 751 with Pope Zacharias. So this is the first instance where we see uh, a, a pope depose a monarch and install another one, giving that apostolic authority uh, to uh, of, of removing one king and appointing another king. So Pepin is now the Carlaginian king of the Franks. And in turn for this support of, of appointing Pepin as the king of the Franks, Pepin in turn supports and protects the papacy. For example, he invades and uh, defeats the Lombards in a series of battles and campaigns. And those cities that that he acquires goes over to the um, the Pope and so creates the papal states. Uh, so now the Pope has um, has its not only uh, religious jurisdiction, but also civil ju jurisdiction where uh, the Pope can now administer the lands in the, in the kind of the central part of Italy today, um, which, you know, which is now just a Vatican city. But at the time, it was formed like kind of like a letter H looking shape within central Italy. So this donation of Pepin was important, but also another document appears as well in this time period, which is called the Donation of Constantine. This document uh, is what's going to be used by the papacy to kind of uh, browbeat the monarchs of Europe. And in this Donation of Constantine, it's a supposed letter from Constantine back in the fourth century, where Constantine thanks Pope Sylvester for curing him of his leprosy. And in turn, uh, gives him... Uh, the administrative duties and the lands over Western Rome of the Western Roman Empire and control of the city of Rome and declaring that the Pope is greater than the emperor. This document, like I said, is going to be used to as a means of keeping the kings of Europe in check um, until it's found out that it's a forgery 700 years later when uh, during the Renaissance where studying manuscripts and their origins and writings and stuff, they'll find uh, flaws uh, within the donate the letter of the donation of Constantine itself and declaring it completely a forgery. So Pepin dies in 768 and once again divides his territories between his two sons, Carloman and Charles. Uh, long story short, uh, Carloman dies and Charles regains complete control of the Frankish lands. And we know him today as Charles the Great or more simply as Charlemagne, who will have a, a huge impact uh, guiding Europe into that medieval period and laying the foundations for what we understand of medieval Europe. We're really focusing on uh, the military campaigns on this slide and looking at his campaigns of conquest. For the 43 years of him ruling, 30 plus to 40 years of it was spent fighting and, and conquering someone. Um, so, for example, he conquered northern Italy, conquered the Lombard kings there, gaining the iron crown of the Lombards. He invaded into Spain, uh, conquering the Spanish borderlands as far as Barcelona, or at least his son did, Louis the Pious. Um, and he also waged a campaign against the, the Saxons in northern Germany. Now, this campaign was the longest and most brutal. It lasted for 30 years, and it was constantly uh, him marching in, forced converting uh, some of the Saxon tribes. They would convert, they'd be baptized, he would leave, they would revolt, return to the pagan waves, and he would have to come back in and uh, burn down towns and villages and stuff 
and uh, force convert, leave again. And so it was almost a guerrilla warfare of constant campaigning over and over again. The brutality of this campaign convinced Charlemagne eventually in 797 to outlaw the death penalty for paganism uh, because of these forced brutality, these forced conversions. But it would help eventually as the um, with the resettlement of Franks into these territories, uh, bringing in northern Germany and parts of, of of the far of central Europe into Frankish control, as well as spreading Christianity into those lands. Because of these campaigns of conquest, um, <clears throat> Charlemagne was recognized as Emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day, 800 AD. Now, what's interesting is that the historical accounts say that Charlemagne had uh, had no clue what was going to take place that day, which seems very unlikely. Historians are, are on either side of the issue. Uh, Pope Leo... Um, <clears throat> uh, needed a favor from uh, Charlemagne on a, on a particular matter regarding perjury and such. And, and Charlemagne came to his defense. And so as a way of recognizing Charlemagne's support, uh, he crowned him the, the emperor of the Romans. Now this greatly upset the Byzantine emperors in the East. Um, at this time, it was ruled by Empress Irene, who wasn't recognized as the empress as she was ruling through uh, her son. Um, but uh, so the uh, the the Byzantines were were slighted and, and would eventually recognize Charlemagne as a as a brother. The Byzantine emperors would recognize him as a brother emperor in the West. But Charlemagne ultimately um, would be crowned this Roman emperor, emperor of the Romans, and would lead to the formation of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the crown will eventually go to one of his grandsons, and then it would, and the Holy Roman Empire began to formulate into this kind of Germanic confederation later on in Central Europe. But in the meantime, it's just the title that's used to describe him as these, this reunifier of Western Christendom. Uh, but it does have a big impact splitting um, <clears throat> the Eastern and Western churches and Christendoms apart further and further. During Charlemagne's reign, there was a renaissance that began to take place. Um, it was impacted by the fact that Charlemagne uh, uh, had a deep drive for intellect and, and education and a desire for uh, expanding the intellectual uh, capabilities of the people in his territories and his kingdom. He had an interest in developing, those, in developing uh, that aspect of his empire. And so he began to invite to his court all these different scholars from the different parts of Western Europe, from Britain, from Spain, from Italy, invited them to his court. Unfortunately for these scholars, they had to travel with him on campaign constantly. So it was very difficult for them to you know, really focus on particular intellectual tasks. But nonetheless, when the campaigning season stopped, they would have much more time to focus. One important individual that would definitely shape um, the Carlovingian Renaissance is a man named Alcuin of York. Uh, he would be part of uh, Charlemagne's court for 22 years, and in that time period, he makes a, a different series of contributions. One is um, he develops the Carlovingian Minuscule, which is kind of like a type font system that we somewhat use today in our writings and readings. Um, he uh, orders the building of libraries attached to uh, monastic communities. The, these expansion of these libraries, which would contribute to the writing and copying of manuscripts. Um, some historians say that roughly about 50,000 different manuscripts or books 
were produced within this uh, within the ninth uh, century alone. Um, he also standardized and updates the Vulgate as well. So all these are contributing factors to this intellectual drive that appears in the Carlinian Renaissance and afterwards. Uh, Charlemagne also cares about the education of his people, and he orders a decree that all parish churches should provide a school for the boys in the neighborhood. This was obviously impossible really to enforce, but it does show that there was a, a deep focus for education. Alcuin is also appointed the head of the Royal Academy in Aachen, which is the capital of the Frankish, uh, uh, the Frankish Empire. Uh, Alcuin uh, really kind of cements how uh, priests and clergy, as well as uh, as well as secular clergy, would be educated, uh, focusing on the uh, trivium quadrium that that was developed by Boethius. Remember, the trivium is rhetoric, grammar, logic. Quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, and then also focusing on making sure priests uh, are educated in knowing things like the creeds, the mass, sacramentary, which is a list of uh, scheduled list of prayers or prayers involving certain liturgies, um, as well as uh, the lectionary, which was required a calendar scripture reading, as well as the homilies or sermons of early church fathers. So, uh, so there was a huge expansion of of trying to drive clergy education upwards um, that will have an impact later on. Now, Charlemagne did view himself as a, as a sacred king in a sense of like King David or King Josiah, kind of like one of the Old Testament kings. He viewed himself as someone who not only had authority in the political realm, but also in the religious realm as well. So if we look at his decrees in this time period, a lot of them are folk driving a religious uh, content versus a political content. Um, in a sense, Charlemagne kind of had no choice in a sense because it's his worldview, but also the people he relied upon were uh, the bishops. The bishops were the only few individuals who were educated. So a lot of bishops, he appointed bishops to their offices, um, but he also utilized them uh, for uh certain offices uh, for managing uh, domestic affairs, political affairs of his empire, so that bishops served dual roles. It wasn't uncommon for bishops to complain that they had to march on campaign against the Muslims with uh, with uh, Charlemagne and fight in battle during the day, working their sword, and then at night working their pins, uh, having to study and write as a bishop. So they're complaining about the dual aspect of their nature. Uh, what's interesting, too, is, is, like I said, Charlemagne is really invested into appointing bishops in this time period. And one is that to maintain control across uh, his empire. He doesn't want local uh, bishops being chosen locally by the nobility and by the people who can in turn potentially turn against him. Nobles still uh, are playing are key component of managing his empire. He wants to maintain friendly terms with them, but also doesn't want to give them too much power and influence. Later on, the the papacy is going to want to step in and want to play a role in the appointment of those bishops as well. But like I said, in this time period, bishops were appointed by Charlemagne, as well as playing a dual role, managing the affairs of the church, as well as managing the affairs of the empire. Charlemagne does uh, have a, uh, like I said, he has a, that has that Christian worldview where he understands that, for example, that, uh, that uh, things like famines or plagues, are judgments by God for the sin of him or his people. And so he orders public fasts. He makes uh, uh, Sunday a day of observance. 
He makes tithes compulsory uh, in universal across his empire. So everybody has to give uh, a tenth of what they produce, whether it's livestock, hay, corn, wine, whatever it might be, but they have to give it up. And the reason why, too, is because of the expansion of the parish churches across the Frankish Empire. You have all these parish churches that are now appearing. They they are going to be uh, uh, run by these by the priests and the clergy. So you need to have money and an income to pay for these parish churches to get them this network, this large expansion network up and running. Originally, remember, like I talked about in the earlier lectures of the early church, the western part of the Roman Empire had urban centers and had churches in those urban centers, but it was very, very difficult in the rural areas. And the Western Empire was much more rural than it was in the East. And so with the decline of the Roman Empire, you had a decline of cities. And so with the decline of cities, you had a decline of church cities as well. So in response to that, you see the rise of parish churches because there's a, a heavy focus of agrarianism in the society. Eventually, that begins to change with the rise of cities, as we see in the high and late Middle Ages. Um, but in the meantime, right now, the parish network, the small churches that have baptistries and cemeteries began to appear and flourish across the Frankish Empire. There are controversies uh, that appeared during Charlemagne's reign and around that 7th and 9th century. One controversy uh, is the adoptionist controversy that appears. So the adoption controversy involves how do you understand that? as Christ is the son of God. And it goes back to understanding Christology. Remember in uh, the second lecture, early church history, part two, the uh, council of Chalcedon solidifies the Orthodox view that Christ is one person with two natures, fully human, fully God. The question now becomes, okay, how do we understand Christ as the son of God? Well, the adoptionist controversy was Christ was eternally known as the son of God, but was adopted as the son of God by in his human nature. This, of course, was opposed and condemned by the Council of Frankfurt in 794. And the question had to be addressed, where does uh, Christ's sonship belong? Does it belong to his nature or does it belong to his person? And Alswin of, of York argued that the father and son shared the same nature, same divine essence. Therefore, the sonship belongs to his person, the one person. Um because ultimately, if you ascribe it to his human nature, you create a second person, and therefore you fall into the Nestorian heresy. Uh, and so this controversy appeared and had to be addressed by the different Frankish uh, leaders and, and Western bishops. Now, Charlemagne, like I said, viewed himself as a sacred king, someone similar to the Byzantine emperors. Remember, in the East, unlike in the West, the Byzantine emperors really set... Uh, the church policy um, and regulated the affairs of the church. The Patriarch of Constantinople was not like the Bishop of Rome um, or the Patriarch of Rome um, and could not stand in opposition to uh, the emperor without suffering severe consequences. In fact, the Patriarch of Constantinople, as well as many other bishops, were appointed or, or at least uh, had to get approval from the emperor, the Byzantine emperor. The Byzantine emperor played a role in the election of and consecration of those individuals. Uh, even the Bishop of Rome, prior to this point, uh, when the Byzantines controlled Italy, had to get approval from the Byzantine emperor. But that began to change with the rise of Charlemagne and the Frankish kingdom. Now they no longer sought the support of, in the need of having Byzantine approval to become emperor. 
Now, Charlemagne, like I said, reviewed himself as someone who should be like the Byzantine emperor, should play a role in the approval of the appointment of bishops, approval of who the next pope was going to be, um, and had the right and duty to uh, interfere into the affairs of the church. It was his duty as a sacred king to manage the affairs of the church. And this will create controversy and conflict with the papacy. And after Charlemagne's death into the medieval period as well, between the powers and influence of the church and the state. Some examples of this conflict, one is the iconoclastic controversy in 790. We'll talk about that in the next lecture of the Byzantine court uh, dealing with icons in the church. Ultimately, the Second Council of Nicaea around 789, I think, uh, addressed the issues of icons, allowing for icons to be in the church and such. Um, and Charlemagne was miffed that the Frankish bishops were not invited to the Second Council of Nicaea and instead decided to formulate his own ruling on the matter, declaring that they aren't, they aren't going to go along and say that the icons should be worshipped or venerated, nor can icons uh, conduct any form of miracles. But icons can adorn the church as a means of education and inspiration. Um, this greatly upset the Byzantine emperor. It also greatly upset the bishop of Rome, who was, who was trying to play both sides uh, and didn't like that Charlemagne was interfering in the affairs of these, of these religious matters. And then once again, later on, Charlemagne uh, introduces a decree inserting the filioque clause into the Nicene Creed. Remember, the Nicene Creed came out of the uh, Trin Trinity debates in the 4th century. Um, and the, the, the Nicene Creed goes that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. By this point, there began by the sixth, seventh uh, century, began to include the Western Christian Western Christian bishops began to include the phrase "and from the Son." So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Uh, and Charlemagne kind of submits this as yes, this is going to be now the permanent addition to the Nicene Creed. This upsets the Byzantine court, um, who declare that one, you can't make any unilateral changes to an ecumenical creed uh, without you know, entire without ecumenical support across the entire Christendom. And second, um, you're theologically wrong. It was their argument. There's incorrect. And they go through the argument. Um, Pope Leo was kind of like, once again, caught in the middle. He agreed with uh, Charlemagne theologically, just didn't like with the way theological, uh, what the actions that Charlemagne was taking. And remember the papacy viewed um, Charlemagne as subordinate to them, especially as they're the ones that crowned him as the emperor of the Romans and appointed his father, uh, Pepin, as king of the Franks. So therefore, they viewed themselves as superior to the kings uh, of the Franks and in their positions of power. So like I said, this, this relationship between the papacy and the Charlotte and the Carlogenian Franks um, is, is, they have to be united to work together, but they are, there's also division being in place at this moment because there's different goals. The, the papacy wants to maintain its independence. It doesn't want to be dictated to either by the Byzantines or by the Franks or by any, any kingdom in particular. They want to have their own level of independence. But at the same time, too, they don't have the power for uh, security, for defense in the ways that the Frankish kings do or the Byzantines do. They are limited in what, what means they can pull together for security, for protection. So they have no other choice but turning to the state for protection. So there's this tenuous balance there of trying to bring the state in under control underneath them while working with them. Charlemagne has the opposite view in that it's his responsibility as a king, kind of in the sense the early formula, kind of like divine right of the king, that 
that he's appointed by God to shepherd not only the secular aspects of his kingdom, but also the spiritual welfare of his kingdom, and that he had the right to regulate the church. So this laid the groundwork for that potential conflict between the religious and the political that we're going to see constantly appear, um, like, for example, the lay investor controversies later on in the medieval period. So developments and changes in Western worship. So because of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, there was definitely a decline in the education of the clergy. So the so uh, one of the positive aspects of Charlemagne's reign is that Carlovingian Renaissance that began to then develop the education of the clergy to to make it make it up to standard. Um, the clergy, uh, because of their limited knowledge and education, really began to focus on the liturgical and sacramental aspects of worship. So, for example, what songs are being sung, you know, it's following the proper scripture reading, the proper songs for mass and et cetera. Um, there was a the, the the focus began to shift in the worship where it used to be on two things. It was on the sermon, the preaching of the word and the sacrament to, to simply only the sacrament, the, the sacrament, especially communion, became the center point of worship. Doesn't mean that sermons disappeared entirely. But what began to happen was that they began to read homilies or sermons from uh, from previous church fathers. There, like I said, there wasn't a complete absence of their own sermon development and writings or many different bishops and abbots and such who wrote their own sermons. Um, then there were preachers, like we'll look at the different mendicant orders, um, but really the clergy began to have a strong emphasis on that liturgy and on that sacramental function. Uh, there was two different liturgies at this time. There was the Gallican liturgy and the Roman liturgy. Ultimately, the Roman liturgy won sway across Charlemagne, became the standard across uh, Charlemagne's empire, became the standard across Western Christendom. In the East, that would be the Constantinople uh, Constant, uh, liturgy that became the uh, center point of Eastern Orthodox worship. And we'll talk about that in another lecture. So like I said, the, the communion or the Eucharist became the center point of worship, the uh, participation of uh, eating the bread and wine, uh, drink eating the body of Christ, drinking his blood, uh, became the center point and the focal point of worship. Remember, it's kind of multifaceted because one, you had the decline of the education of clergy, but also the education of the laity was limited too. So the, the you had to be able to convey through through these means what the purpose of Christ death and his resurrection was and also the understanding of grace began to change it was still followed the augustinian view of grace um, but began to apply much more so in that uh, grace is gradually bestowed upon you through these sacraments through doing these things um, so the viewpoint of grace began to kind of slowly begin to change and transform itself to what we would what we would you know recognize more and more so in the medieval period um, how the laity participate in communion also began to change in the early church, everybody participated. It was done every Sunday. Everybody would bring bread and wine. It would be shared communally across the whole uh, church. Uh, by the 5th century, it began to become less and less frequent for the laity, for the congregants to participate in communion. And then by the 6th century, it was only done three times a year where the laity would participate. It was done every, still done every Sunday, but the parish priests were the only ones who would partake of it. The laity would only partake three times at Easter uh, Pentecost, and then Christmas. And then eventually it was just Easter for the laity. So the reasons why this began to change was two. One is that the fear and reverence of the body and blood of Christ, that this is 
God itself and transformed. And there was all these kind of rules involvement. You know, you eat a bread and a crumb falls to the floor and, and a rat eats it or something. You know, what what happens then? And and so there was a sense of dread and fear for what these transforming of these elements into the body and blood of Christ. And then second off was the clergy elevated the standard of those who could participate in it, almost to the near possibility of 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 any laity partaking of it. And so over time, because the standards became so high, it began to become more common that people would just not partake and simply view it um, and have that only one time in the year, have that special uh, participation of the communion service. There's also a, 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 sh a shift in the liturgy where, um, so now you had different masses taking place. Um, so in the, in the eighth century, what ended up happening was that on Sunday you would have the high mass. So this liturgical mass was, um, simplified in its form, uh, but it had singing. It was a very involved from all participants, uh, who would partake in the mass celebration, following the liturgy, following the singing and the reading and such. Um, so everybody in the whole community would be participating in the parish churches or the cathedrals of the high mass. That was done part particularly on Sundays. On the weekdays, you would have the low mass, which was only performed by the priests. No singing was conducted. It was conducted in a very low voice, uh, you know, very, very silent uh, low mass. But the part the lay people could participate, but only in a devotional sense. They could attend, but they couldn't be physically participating in the service. They could watch and observe and pray um, and meditate, but they could not involve themselves with the low mass. Um, so it was a sense of trying to have a weekday service uh, for the people to participate in in the celebration of, of Christ's sacrifice. So looking at some important reformers that uh, appear in this time period as well. So you have Benedict of Anion. Um, he was a Frankish soldier who had a drowning accident and then uh, through the accident can, uh, became a monk. Um, and he had a very strict mindset of what a monk should be and do. Um, so in 779, he founded his own monastery, but his rules were so strict that everybody left his monastery and but it, because of his uh, focus and dedication and his piety, he drew the influence of Charlemagne's uh, future son, uh, Louis the Pious. Louis the Pious uh, allowed him to build another monastery and granted him freedom from all secular control. And so monasteries, in a sense, began to be outside the power and influence of the secular authorities and only had to answer to the papacy and the bishop of Rome because they eventually acquired their appointments that way. Um so Benedict, what he does is he takes the, the rules of St. Benedict of Nursia from the, the 5th century, 5th and 6th century, to uh, standardize it across all monasteries um, throughout the Frankish Empire, Frankish Kingdom. Um, especially in 817, he tries to kind of formulate a council to have this, the standardized approach across all aspects of monasteries. Unfortunately, it doesn't outlive him. Um, he dies in 821. But nonetheless, the, this, this influence of having a standardized monastic rule um, through the rule of St. Benedict becomes commonplace and eventually amplified with the Cluniac revival uh, 100 years later. Some other important controversies, uh, one in particular, the predestination controversy. Now, Augustinianism is still uh, a key component of Western 
medieval theology, especially with dealing with grace, sin, the sacraments, the church, even predestination. So Gottschalk was uh, placed in a monastery by his father, the, mon- the monastery of Fulda, which was kind of this, uh, which was a ru- up and running, up and coming center of religious education in Germany. It was run by a man named Rabanus Morris, um, a very well-educated man. Um, Gottschalk kind of ran, uh, ran afoul of him when he wanted to leave the monastery um, and actually renounce his vows. Um, so Rabanus was kind of, uh, offended by it uh and instead just simply allowed him to leave and go to another monastery um Gottschalk was ordained to the priesthood and really began to study the the theologies and writings of augustine especially dealing with things like predestination and grace and so became enthralled with the law of augustine's writings and in comparison with the writings of paul began to teach the uh views of double predestination that god determines through election and reprobation um, and so he begins to kind of have a, a series of followers and, and his, his viewpoints begin to spread and he comes into conflict to, with Rabanus, who opposes, um, and condemns what Gottschalk is teaching. And Gottschalk doesn't do any favors by accusing Rabanus of being a semi-Pelagian. So ultimately now there's now a conflict that breaks out within the Frankish empire and they formulate a council of Mainz in 848, where Gottschalk has to defend his views. The problem is that the uh, key figure at this council is a man named Hank Marr of Reims. Hank Marr is one of those figures in church history that's unfortunate because he, he has a very brutish mentality of managing the affairs of the church and uh, without the sense of charity and respect for, for overemphasis on discipline without the charity and respect that comes with it. So he, in, in a thuggish way, kind of demands that Gottschalk uh, – uh, he demands that or orders that Chuck Mock, uh, Gottschalk be arrested, lives his life in the monastery, is tortured to the end of his life, um, uh, and Gottschalk will be driven insane being, being forced to live in this monastery, but refuses to uh, to recant of his positions. So because of the actions of Hank Marr, there the controversy grows even further because of the, this brutal treatment of Gottschalk. Um, and many people agree with Gottschalk and began to support his views. And so there's many church councils between 853 and 859 on this issue of predestination. And ultimately, they try to compromise at the Council of Tausi in 860, where Hank Marr's semi-plagian views went out. Uh, but Augustinian predestination continues still to thrive, thrive against the semi-plagian viewpoint um, and in the church and will play a, a pivotal role, especially later on with the writings of Aquinas and others, um, the Bennett Bernard of Clairvaux, and eventually into the Reformation itself. So, um, so it's not over at any point, but it really shows that uh, the church controversies are like what the adoptions controversies are still uh, constant, uh, constant appearance throughout church history. Another controversy is involving the Eucharist. How do we understand the? How does the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? What what does the meaning of that? Um, in the early church, it was understood in the sense that when partaking of the bread and wine, it was considered the body and blood of Christ. How it was considered, it was a mystery. Um, so most of the early church didn't really want to delve into the mystery, but just simply declaring it as such. Some uh, different groups began to emphasize different points. So for example, like Ambrose, the Ambrosian point is that 
uh, really focusing on its conversion, that, if, that the physical reality of the bread and wine changes into the body and blood of Christ versus the Augustinian viewpoint, once again, where it's much more so of it being a sign or symbol of Christ's body or blood. So in this Carlaginian period, you had uh, two different viewpoints appear up and conflict with one another, one being Radbertus, who wrote in the Concerning the Body and Blood of the Lord that the bread and wine completely convert as a physical reality into the body and blood of Christ. Though believers partake of it in a spiritual sense, and unbelievers do not, um, it's just simply bread and wine to them. This view was backed up by Hank Marr. Now, another figure named Retrameness um, appears to write and contradict Robertus's views, arguing that the physical reality doesn't change. This is still the bread and wine that remain. But really, there's a spiritual undertone, a spiritual conversion that's only available to believers. Um, and this view opposed uh, uh, Hank Marr's view. Now, ultimately, there was no solution to this viewpoint. These viewpoints uh, were just kind of generally accepted. Uh, but gradually over time, more and more did Western Christendom drift along to Rat thinking to Radbertus's thinkings against Ratramnus, which ultimately will culminate finally back in what we see in the Reformation period, bringing up understanding the, the sacrament of communion and the bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. Some other important figures. One is John uh, Scotus Eregrinia. Uh, he was from Ireland, very important Irish thinker, very intelligent, was made head of the Royal Academy in 843. Uh, he himself was brought in to address numerous controversies. Uh, Hank Marr kind of invited him in. Uh, he was involved in the predestination controversy. He opposed Scott Chalk on predestination, but he did oppose Hank Marr on the communion controversy to Hank Marr's chagrin. Um, and so agreed with retrameness on understanding of communion. Uh, John Scotus was, uh, had a very Neoplatonic understanding of the, of the world, uh, thanks to reading pseudo Dionysus's work. Um, and then the pseudo Dionysus's writings have a Neoplatonist viewpoint as well. And because he takes his work and converts it over into Latin, which will later influence Western thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, um, it really shapes his worldview as well, um, especially in his writings like The Division of Nature in 862, where ultimately he kind of argues that um, when you're reading scripture, when you when it comes to understanding theology and reason, if there's a contradiction between the two, you can only interpret theology from an allegorical perspective. Um, a lot of and the problem what got him in trouble was that uh, his writings in the Division of Nature had an, had an uh, a slight undertone of pantheism that God was in everything, this Neoplatonic emanation with Christian creation. Um, and so a lot of individuals viewed his writing as heretical and eventually his works would be destroyed uh, and burnt in 1225 by Pope Honorius III. But he is kind of a standout as an intellectual thinker that appears in this time period. Another important figure um, is Agobard of Lyons. Uh, who gives kind of perspective of what popular culture was like in uh, in Western Christendom. Um, he was born in Spain, immigrates to France, and becomes an archbishop in 816. He uh, runs into trouble because of the lay investor controversy, which lay short, uh, a short summary is that ultimately who has the power to invest bishops with their authority? Is it is it the secular rulers or is it the Bishop of Rome? Who has the power? Um, and so he sided with the Bishop of Rome, having that power to invest 
other bishops and appoint other bishops, uh, which got him removed as the archbishop. So since he didn't placate the lay rulers, um, though he was a prolific writer who wrote whose writings can fill up to 22 different volumes uh, covering different things from heresy to paganism to Judaism. Uh, but like I said, what's important about him is he kind of gives a snapshot of what popular culture was like. And remember, because of the limited knowledge and education in this time period, very and also this is very agrarian society, um, there was the the undertones of pagan magic and pagan belief that played that had an impact within the church. Um, and so, for example, in his writing concerning hail and thunder, he talks about how. Uh, these people would, when this bad storm would appear, instead of relaying it over to God's providence, that bad storm appears would believe evil spirits are what's driving the bad storms and can only use magic to help prevent the bad storms from taking place. Agobar kind of seeks to address things from a rationalist perspective uh, and addressing you know problems around the world in that kind of clear intellectual thinking. So there is, like I said, a very there are individual thinkers in this time period who are standouts in their thoughts and how they view the world. So after Charlemagne dies, the kingdom goes to his son, and the crown of the Holy Roman Empire goes to his son Louis the Pious, who tries to kind of uh, maintain uh, the level of influence and power like his father did. Uh, he was a capable ruler, but not the same level. Ultimately, he dies in 843, and his empire, as you can see in the map, uh, breaks apart. Um, because following the Frankish practice of when you die, you divide up your lands among your legitimate children. So um, his, uh, his son, Louis the German, receives the eastern territories, which is uh, when the map is colored green, and that was what we consider modern-day Germany. Uh, his other son, Charles, gets the Western Frankish lands, which is the, on the map colored orange, which we know as modern-day France. And then his, uh, his other son, Lothar, uh, gets the uh, strip of land from the Netherlands to Italy, as well as the crown of Holy Roman Emperor. Um, Luthar, Luthar doesn't live very long, dies in 855, um, and his territory is eaten up by the Western and Eastern Frankish lands, and the, kind of, the Italy kind of breaks apart into small patchwork kingdoms. But what ends, and the crown goes to uh, the Eastern Germanic kingdom and Eastern German rulers. Now, uh, because of of this kind of split, there began there began to be a gradual disintegration of power among these Frankish rulers, and power began to grow among the nobility. So what we began to see is a development of feudalism began to take place, where nobility began to gain, gain greater and greater influence at the cost of these uh kings so like for example in germany um the kings began to have less and less power but these nobles did and so we start seeing the rise of electors who would choose the holy roman emperor in the kingdom of the franks we see the diminishment of the frankish kings and the, at the cost of these frankish nobles and these different houses that would compete for authority and power and the power control in france um the papacy seeks to try to manipulate uh, these uh, secular rulers in this disintegration this time period, but it runs into its own problems because now the aristocrats in Rome seek to try to usurp the Pope, steal power away from the Pope, and elect their own popes into office. And so there's corruption that shapes um, and causes a decline of papal influence as well. So in this, into the 9th century and 10th century, we do see a, a, a great decline taking place within Western Christendom. 
um, and the rise of anarchy beginning to shape uh, a lot of a lot of uh, the livelihood of, of society. Um, there's also attacks from without. So instead of internal troubles, there's also external troubles. You have uh, the Magyars, a nomadic tribe who settled into Hungary, conducting raids against the Germanic kingdoms. You have the, the Emirate of Cordova uh, gaining power and influence in Spain, and then as well as Viking raids that become prominent in this time period as well. So it's very common for a lot of Christians to view this time period as almost as the end of the world and expecting that the one year 1000 would be the, uh, the end of the world and the return of Christ. So there was a huge expectation for that at the end of this period. So what is the legacy of Charlemagne's uh, empire? Like I said, we had this political disintegration taking place into the 9th and 10th century. But we have to understand, too, is that even with this political disintegration, it doesn't mean that there was a religious disintegration as well. Yes, there were definitely problems and corruptions within uh, within the church in this time period. And as this painting will point out, and I'll tell you about it here in a second. Um, but still, the Carlaginian Renaissance, one with its drive in learning and its focus in writing and manuscript copying, uh, laid a groundwork for intellectual development that will survive and then thrive into the high and late Middle Ages. Um, we also still see the encouragement of missions movement from uh, from Britain and Ireland, and those uh, those monk missionaries coming into Western Christendom will continue to be encouraged and inspiring and spreading Christianity into pagan lands and territories. Um, and we see the blending of the religious and political offices, whether you know looking at Charlemagne who is the Holy Roman Emperor managing the affairs of the church and empire, as well as the papacy having its own lands and civil jurisdictions to manage. But regardless, because of these different factors, um, society is united, united religiously under the church more so than it is politically. And so this common culture appears, whether you lived in the Germanic lands or lived in the Frankish lands or lived in somewhat Northern Italy, though there are some differences, one in a sense can be considered a a European Christian in, in any parts of the Frankish empire. Um, and so this create, this would set the basis for a stable European society as we move into the high middle ages. Now, like I said, um, there is corruption and there, there are problems within the church. Uh, so for example, like in this painting, they see here, this is the famous cadaver synod, I believe of 897, um, in which Pope Formosus is dug out of his grave, um, barely a month after he died. Um, and put on trial for perjury and holding multiple offices by his rival, Pope Stephen. Um, you can see Pope Stephen pointing at Pope Formosus, um, the man standing in black as a deacon meant to represent and defend Pope Formosus. Uh, ultimately, the synod, the cadaver synod is short-lived. Um, pope Formosus is uh, struck in from the record as ever being Pope, had his fingers torn off where his hands were kissed, and uh, was thrown into the Tiber River. What's interesting is that his body did float up from the Tiber River and began to supposedly conduct miracles, in which then the people and aristocrats of Rome turned against Pope Stephen, had him arrested in prison a couple months later, and then strangled to death. And then he was stricken from the records, and Pope Formosus was reapplied as Pope, and it began back and forth between these. But what it ultimately meant to show is the uh, kind of uh, kind of the underpinning of of how people viewed the spiritual world as well as the physical world in this time period and the implications of that. So there is still, there is still corruption and there's still problems within the church. Um, we'll see that. But like I said, hopefully that you also see in this lecture too, is that there are positive lights uh, that there is still a focus on God's grace. There is still a focus on building up his church and his kingdom. 
educating the clergy and those there are positive aspects in church history not just the the super the crazy superstitious and the mystical as well well next time we will look at the byzantine empire and the eastern church and hope to see you and hope for y'all to join me then talk to you later